From my home studio, welcome to Evolve, groundbreaking Jewish conversations. Everybody produces garbage, but everybody doesn't have to live next to the landfill. I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman, and my guest today for a special April Earth Day episode is Rabbi Rebecca Richman. We're going to be talking about her essay, Environmental Racism, A New Year, An Ancient Call for Breath. This piece is adapted from a Rosh Hashanah sermon that Richman delivered last year at the Germantown Jewish Center in Philadelphia, uh, which explains the New Year part of the title. The article explores the lasting damage of redlining and other discriminatory policies, their their impact on the environment, and it also gets into the role that Judaism can and should play in bringing about environmental justice. So before we dive in on this weighty topic, just want to remind you, the essays that we talk about on this show, they're available to read totally for free on the newly redesigned Evolve website, which is evolve.reconstructingjudaism.org. I'm really digging the new look. I, I invite you to explore it. I think it's much easier to find, um, to find articles, to really look at articles by topic. Um, it, it, it's, um, the, the site was always very strong, but it's, it's, it's a big improvement. Um, to let you know, the essays are not required reading for this show. You're going to be able to follow along if you haven't read it, for sure. But we recommend checking them out for, for a deeper view, for a deeper dive into, into these topics. And if you're interested in what we're talking about today, there's plenty of other articles under the heading of climate justice and environmentalism. Just look by topic and you'll discover really a treasure trove of groundbreaking essays on, on this topic and others. Okay, so we're going to get right to it. Time for today's guest. Quick introduction, Rabbi Rebecca Richman is the assistant rabbi and Beit Midrash director at the Germantown Jewish Center right here in Philadelphia. She's also the founding director of the West Philadelphia Art Beit Midrash. A graduate of the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College and the Wexner Graduate Fellowship, She's also, in addition to her rabbinic work, a soferet, which is a Hebrew scribe, a Hebrew calligrapher, ceramicist, and mikvah shomreret. So with that, Rabbi Richmond, Rabbi Rebecca Richmond, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you so much. What a pleasure. So we were just talking a little bit before and so much, so much to talk about. We've got a lot of ground to cover. Environmental racism, it was the focus of your your 2020 Rosh Hashanah sermon, which is which is like your your big chance to to communicate a message to to your congregants. It's 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 obviously a big a big opportunity. And 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 since then you've 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 um, spoken about the topic in in an evolve essay, and you gave a presentation at the 2021 Big Bold Jewish Climate Fest. So. Why did you choose this topic and why, why through a specific Jewish lens? So um, first, I just want to acknowledge that um, I'm white. I'm a white Jew. And I come to this work as um, with that identity, with, my, with awareness about that identity and, 
and as a rabbi. So I want to just acknowledge from the start that I'm not an expert, nor about, not, I'm not an expert by way of my own experience uh, in proximity to environmental hazards, nor by extensive schooling. I've certainly done in college, I studied environmental um, science and actually did a senior honors thesis about uh, child development and environmental consciousness and advocacy. So these issues have been sort of churning over in my mind for as long as I can remember, but I'm not an expert. And I imagine that many of our listeners may be. And so I really hope to be able to be in conversation and advocacy and community with you all. Um, So I grew up in a house where my parents were both environmental scientists and advocates and um, workers of sorts. Um, And I also grew up in a synagogue community at a Dot Shalom Reconstructionist congregation in Bethesda, Maryland, where um, environmental consciousness and awareness were kind of part of the liturgy in a way made possible in large part by Rabbi Fred Scherlander Dobb a huge environmental advocate in the Washington DC area. He's been a a past guest by the way. So yeah, of course. Um, So environmental consciousness, awareness, justice, were all part of sort of the core of what it meant for me to be a thinking, a thinking body at the dinner table. And also very much was tied into my Jewish identity and just thinking about the way that our fight for uh, our fight against racism needs to be so much so an interdisciplinary fight and having that happen in the at the same time as covid watching communities of color be more affected um, in that moment so much more visibly affected than white communities just really kind of was a, a huge call to me and I, I wanted to make clear to my community as well that um, our fight against climate change and our fight against racism, our fight to be a climate, um, (laughs) our fight for for climate justice and our fight to be an anti-racism community and uh, place are deeply, deeply tied together. Um, And they came up for me this summer, um, just so much so um, as I was watching and uh, taking part in this uh, moment of, uh, reckoning in our country after the murder of George Floyd. Wow. That's, that's so different from my, from my own experience where I, I came out of college really with any vocabulary to talk about environmental racism. And I, and I told you before the show out 20 years ago, I broke a, broke a story about groundwater contamination in, mm-hmm. in an African-American community in, in, in Southeast Queens and how it was my first time really, really, really thinking thinking about that, which is, which is why this topic is, is so important to me because it was, it was sort of framed the early part of my, my career. Um, So speaking of framing you, your essay on the Evolve site, you really use the Philadelphia gas refinery as, as, as a way in to talk about the issue. Um, Unless you go, unless you go to the airport or live in the area, you could, you can be in Philadelphia for months or years without, without seeing it. But then when you do, it's, it's just this huge, presence. So can you, can you talk about a little bit about the the refinery and maybe how you, how you first reacted to seeing it? Yeah. So, um, so it's the Philadelphia energy solutions oil refinery, which was the largest largest refinery on the, on the East coast wreaking havoc and damage for over 150 years um, in the city, in the neighborhood. Uh, It's in South Philadelphia on the Grays Ferry neighborhood. 
And I actually, I don't remember the first time I encountered it, but I do remember um, when I, I grew up, as I said, in the DC area and my aunt and uncle live in Mount Airy and we used to drive to see them uh, growing up. We would, you know, drive up from DC and the way, if you are familiar with driving up 95 <laughs> North to get to Mount Airy um, or to get into the city, you get off of 95 near the airport and go over this bridge and off to the left-hand side, as you see the skyline of the city coming into view, there's this mess of smokestacks. And right, this is right by 76, right? Exactly. Oh, sorry. Off of, yeah, right. Right before seven, off of 95 on your way to 76. Exactly. Right. So um, I always remember passing over it and feeling like that can't be good that this is this close to the city, right? And I think we maybe maybe even had discussions about it in the car, of course, with my parents. Um, so yeah, that was my first encounter. And I saw it again. I remember when, when my partner and I moved to Philadelphia, we drove a moving truck with our stuff up from DC. Um, and we drove to our neighborhood, West Philadelphia, by way of that same bridge. And I remember thinking to myself, this neighborhood that we're moving to is pretty close to that refinery um, or those smokestacks. I didn't really know what it was at the time. Is that really gonna be safe and okay? And it, there, was a, there was a piece published in um, the New York Times Magazine uh, this summer, uh, all about that refinery and the fight to shut it down, successful, the work to shut it down done in large part by community members uh, and an organization called Philly thrive. Um, we'll, we'll share that piece in our, in our show notes for sure. It was a, it was a really insightful piece. Yeah. Great. So um, Philly thrive has um, is working on a new campaign um, to make sure that uh, it's called the right to thrive campaign launched in October of 2020 um, working to repair the damage that's already been done, right? Just because the refinery has been shut down doesn't mean that people aren't still sick and aren't still dying. There's um, evidence now of, of, of decades of, of health repercussions for residents, right? Absolutely. Cancers. Um, in the article, someone is referenced, uh, someone references um, what's what they call the South Philly post-nasal drip, um, I think was the term that was used. Um, just incredible, incredible health repercussions, um, uh, cancer clusters, and massive, massive uh, sicknesses, and and types of cancer like gallbladder cancer that are not typically seen among younger and middle-aged people appearing in this neighborhood um, repeatedly. Um, so, working to repair that violence and damage, and also to figure out what cleanup needs to be done, um, what what's what's uh, sitting in the soil, what's sitting underneath, and what can be done with that massive, massive plot of land um, that um, is almost the size of Center City. Wow. Um, which is like, I don't know, lower Manhattan for for maybe a, a, a New York-centric you know, reference. I'm so New York-centric. It's, yeah. <laughs> There's probably a lot of other examples. So I know you're you're very interested in in housing and and and, and race politics and how this all ties together. I know probably most of us have had heard the term redlining, which which actually is, from what I understand, more you know fairly complex set set of policies. Can you begin to tie for us how this how this all 
relates to this refinery and, and, and the community around it? So I'm glad you raised this because you can't really have a discussion about environmental racism without talking about housing. Um, and this really takes us back to the 1930s in the wake of the Great Depression um, and FDR and of course the New Deal. Um, and one of the pieces of policy that came out of the New Deal is the National Housing Act of 1934 and the Homeowners Loan Corporation, which worked to make maps um, to indicate to banks where would be quote unquote safe or um, uh, reliable neighborhoods to lend out mortgages. And obviously, um, as we know, um, black and brown neighborhoods were redlined and coded themselves were coded as the red ones, the not good ones, the ones where mortgages would be riskier to lend out. Um, and I think what's really important to know is that um, the that redlining and that negative coding happened regardless of loan and mortgage payment history, um, which made it difficult from that moment forward, if not impossible for black and brown people to buy homes or refinance their, um, their mortgages. So um, what happens in the wake of that policy is um, obviously housing property values plummet, uh, landlords aband abandon properties, resources um, in inner city neighborhoods uh, plummet down. And yeah, so things obviously get bad. And the story obviously doesn't end there. Um, there are covenants in the suburbs that legally permit discrimination so white people are permitted um, to not sell their homes to black folks. Right. Until 1968, that's perfectly legal, right? Right. So fast forward to 1968 with the Fair Housing Act, um, which tries to decrease segregation and discrimination moving forward, but does pretty much nothing in the way of repairing the inequity that's already built up over the past 30 years. And as we know, those 30 years between the National Housing Act of 1934 and the Fair Housing Act of 1968 have drawn out and brought us to today where housing discrimination and segregation are still visibly, um, visibly rampant. So we are still living the legacy of these housing policies and they have much to do with the environmental health makeup of our nation. I mean, it might be, it might be an academic point. Uh, do you... Do you have a sense to, and it might be too big a question, to what extent redlining really crystallized situations that were already in place or, or actually created those situations? I mean, my, my sense is the refinery was, was, built, was built prior to the 30s, right? So, so um, I guess yeah, that's- Well, the problem is that the, another, you know, it wasn't just these areas weren't just coded based on race. They're also coded like a neighborhood that was next to an existing hazardous waste site is not going to get an A rating coding. It's not going to get coded as a green or blue area. It's going to get coded as red or maybe yellow. But um, so I think the answer is both. Although I would certainly defer to um, my partner who is a urban planner and yeah. um, expert on that for, for more details there. Yeah. So while we're, we're still talking about, while we're talking about the, the repercussions of some of these policies, do you see that, um, do you see this legacy playing a role in the higher instances of um, of, of deaths from COVID nineteen in, in minority communities, or um, or are they separate issues? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. 
in a White House briefing on April 7th, 2020. So we're into the pandemic, but it's early. Um, Fauci says, um, we've known literally forever that diseases like diabetes, hypertension, obesity, and asthma are disproportionately affecting the minority populations, especially the African-Americans. Um, and he continues, unfortunately, when you look at the predisposing conditions that lead to a bad outcome with coronavirus, the things that get people into ICUs that require intubation and lead to death, they are just those very comorbidities that are unfortunately disproportionately prevalent in the African-American population. And so I guess I wanted to, um, I raise that just to say that this is, we've known this, we could have, we could have predicted that before the pandemic reached um, North American soil. And just to speak a bit to how, how we've gotten to those, um, how, that disproportionate exposure, I guess I wanna take us uh, to back to 1978 um, to Houston, Texas and uh, introduce our listeners, if you don't already know of him, to Dr. Robert D. Bullard, who's often known as the father of the environmental justice movement. Um, so in 1978, his wife, um, he tells this story that his wife comes home and tells him, hey, today, you know what today I did? I sued the state of Texas and a company that um, were trying to put a landfill in the, in the middle, uh, like smack in the middle of a middle-class black neighborhood in, um, in Houston. And it's interesting that he notes just to, um, these issues are so intersectional and just of note is that this, in this instance, it was a middle-class black neighborhood, right? So it's not a low-income community. It's a middle-class black neighborhood. This neighborhood actually has lots of trees, um, unlike many uh, predominantly black neighborhoods, which I'd be happy to talk about in terms of heat. Um, so anyway, his wife says, um, basically, I need some help with someone pointing out, uh, I, need, I need some help from someone who's a sociologist and that's her wife, her husband. So, um, so he explains that from the 30s to 1978, again, that same time period that we just talked about, five out of five city owned landfills in um, Houston were in black neighborhoods six out of eight city owned incinerators were in black neighborhoods and three out of four private, privately owned landfills were in black neighborhoods. Um, and of course this is stark on its own, black people in, in that city only made up at that point 25% of the population. And as he's telling this story, he says something remarkable, which is um, so simple, which is everybody produces garbage, but everybody doesn't have to live next to the landfill. Except, of course, we know um, by the environmental history of this of this nation where the landfills get put and where communities um, with less access um, to wealth and capital, um, which of course Black communities have less access to because of the legacy of housing discrimination, which was the primary way that wh white Americans have built up wealth over the last almost 100 years. Um, yeah, these issues just continue to spiral together, as you can see here. So clearly... Clearly, cancer clusters, environmental catastrophes are not exclusive to minority communities. I mean, all one has to do is read A Civil Action, one of, one of the most heartbreaking books yeah. I've ever read about, about um, uh, cancer caused from, from the water supply in, in uh, 
white work working class suburb outside of Boston. Yeah. So I mean, in college, been... just to interrupt for a second. In college, I studied with my my most amazing professor, Professor Laura Golden. Um, taught several of the classes that I took of an, around environmental justice. And we actually went to go visit with some of the people who um, gave testimonies in that book. I went to Brandeis. So close wow. and we actually got to go visit with some of those folks. So um, all white folks. Yeah. So is there, I mean, is there an ex- a possibility for a coalition there or is there, is there, is there any way that, that keeping the focus on race is, you know, detracts from the bigger bigger picture i mean i'm, I'm just asking because um i mean those those were heartbreaking stories as well obviously um i think it's a really important thing that all people who are experiencing adverse health because of where they are living are able to come together bring their voices to the table make their stories known and have and and rest assured that policymakers and those with power are going to make changes um Obviously, we a collaboration is lovely and wonderful, but the problem, I think part of the, one of the biggest problems is that the people sitting at the table who have power to make decisions are so often predominantly white people. And sometimes there are white people who have these experiences or are in community with people who have these experiences, but largely, um, largely Black Americans who are experiencing environmental racism are wildly underrepresented at the table and in these conversations. And it's not just a matter of um, these conversations in government, uh, governmental bodies, but also in environmental advocacy groups. The environmental justice and environmental movement since the 60s, its growth in the 60s, has re- its birth, I should say in the 60s, has really been a white space. And I think that not it's not in any way to negate the experience of white people, but just to say that they're not the only ones who have that experience and they're certainly not the ones who have, um, it's just, there's so much more to the story. So we need to have, we need to have everyone be at the table with each other. And I think that we also need to be careful that collaboration doesn't come at the cost of, um, of acknowledging the, disper- the, um, the differences and experiences that people have had um, based on race, certainly not uh, necessarily parallel experiences in this country. Are things or our awareness changing at least a little bit? I mean, we know that um, at least a reference or, or a reference to environmental racism and justice was in an early um, one of the first executive orders signed by signed by President Biden. Is are, are, are we turning some kind of corner? I I would like to think so. I certainly hope so. Um, and I think that we're going to be pushed there faster and faster. Um, the climate crisis is making all of these issues more and more uh, pressing and acute. Um, and if we don't step up to the plate, the plate is going to come flying at us. Okay, so if you're enjoying this interview, and I sure hope you are, Go ahead and hit the subscribe button, and in the future, you'll be among the first to know when a new episode just magically appears. And if you're a new listener, new to the show, welcome. So happy to have you out there, part of our community and conversation. Go ahead and check out our back catalog for lots of other interesting interviews. And you want to go one step to the side or one step further? 
take a minute and give us a five-star rating or review on whatever platform you're listening on, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, they all take reviews. And those kind of ratings really help other people find out about the show, algorithms, all that stuff I don't really understand. But they get people here, they, they, um, they get ears, um, you know, in front of the speakers or whatever. So please go ahead and spread the word and thank you for being a part of Evolve Groundbreaking Jewish Conversations. So right about now, I'm going to send us back to our interview with Rabbi Rebecca Richmond. So we've been, we've been, we've been talking for um, a while. Your, um, your, your, your title is Rabbi. We haven't, we haven't yet mentioned mentioned the Torah or, or, or anything to do with Jewish tradition. Um, yeah. How does, how do you look for Torah for, as a model for how to, how to talk about this issue in present day? Yeah. So um, when the Israelites are about to um, enter the land of Israel, Moses, who has been leading them for decades, gives them a, giant list of instructions for how to be as they go forward. And one of the instructions that he gives them um, is specifically about ensuring that the spaces that they live in are sacred and safe. And one of the instructions that he gives in the book of um, Tvarim in Deuteronomy, it's chapter 23, um, he says, there shall be an area for you, michutz lemachaneh, outside the camp where you may relieve yourself. God moves about in your camp to protect you. Let your camp be holy. And um, it's so important for Moses to convey this message to the Israelites. It's so important for him to convey this idea of having a space for uh, bodily excretions outside the camp because um, bio waste is hazardous and toxic and a major health hazard. And so right there in the terms that are most accessible and relevant to the Israelites, we have Torah laying the foundation for us for environmental justice, environmental protection. It doesn't say that um, this area should be for certain people. It's outside the whole camp. Nobody should have to live next to it. Nobody should have to be in close proximity to toxins. And so this deeply anti-discriminatory environmental health law that gets put forward continues to speak to us today. And the Torah, I think it's so important that we, um, you know, obviously as a reconstructionist, for me, one of the ways that I read the Torah is reading it in its context and then figuring out how that translates into the moment that we are in today. And bio waste and biohazards are not the only toxin that we have to manage and keep outside of our camps. And we're doing a pretty bad job at that. And so another place that I turn to as a, as a Jew and uh, as a learner and a holder of Torah is, okay, what do we do when we make mistakes? Because we've made big mistakes. And um, Torah is uh, smart <laughs> and brilliant and wise and um, has everything that we need right there. Uh, and there's a piece of halacha, a piece of Jewish law that says, um, this is from the Shulchan Aruch, that says, uh, one who does something at a distance and it causes damage to somebody else, it has disturbed the peace. The one who caused the damage is liable and they must pay. And so it's really clear that 
you know what, we're going to make mistakes. We know that we know that Jewish tradition um, acknowledges and makes way for us to um, make repair when we've, when we've uh, done something wrong. And so what do we do when we've, um, when we have created a situation when, for example, there are environmental hazards that are wreaking damage and havoc, guess what? The people who put them there, the people who are responsible, the people who, uh, who created that situation are responsible and they must pay. And so Torah for me um, is painting, paints such a clear picture and offers such a clear message that um, not only advocating for environmental health and environmental justice, which itself is non-discriminatory and is meant for all people, but also says that when that doesn't happen and when there is damage, um, we have to pay. So um, I'm talking about reparations here. Um, so I think that part of what Torah is calling us into as always is uh, greater political awareness of the situation that we're in and greater accountability to who we're in relationship with, um, who we may have harmed and what we need to do not just with our minds and our hearts, but sometimes also with our pocketbooks um, and with our resources to actually remedy um, those damages. I mean, generally, when you talk about the conversation around reparations and HR 40, it, you know, the, the animating issue is, is, is slavery, although, although Tennessee Coates in his, in his famous Atlantic article really goes into housing policy and the you know, in, in Chicago prior, prior to the Fair Housing Act. But I guess, are you, are you talking about something, something different? Are you, are you talking about this within the context of, of the movement to, to have reparations for, for slavery? How, how do you, um, I guess? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's multiple and large. And there are advocates who, um, in the environmental justice world, who are advocating strongly that the Green New Deal, for example, should include reparations that our work in environmental justice has to acknowledge the legacy of slavery and the damaging legacy there. And that that, it, that itself is also tied to environmental, um, adverse environmental health effects. And that's also something that we have to do something about. From what I understand for a long time, environmental activism and, and racial justice activism was, was happening on, on two subtly separate tracks and, 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 and there wasn't a lot of interaction. Is that, has that historically been a problem? And is that, is that starting to change? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that, um, I think it really depends on the place and on the community, but I think that at least the, um, the environmental movement when it's labeled as such has tip has traditionally not been focused so much on race, even though environmental justice movements have of course been right. Like already in the sixties and seventies, we're seeing, um, we're seeing uh, strikes specifically focused on um, environmental health for um, garbage workers in Memphis, Tennessee, black garbage workers. So we're already seeing the environmental justice movement integrating these things, but the environmental movement, the gadol on the whole, not necessarily so much. And I do think that we're starting to see that shift um, I do think we're starting to see that shift, which is definitely heartening. You've clearly been thinking about environmental issues and, and, and related issues for a long time. I, I'm, I guess I'm curious um, if, if I can ask, has, 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 becoming a, has becoming a parent changed or enhanced how you, how you think about these issues? Because it's, 
you know, it's obviously very much about the world that we're bequeathing to our, to our children and our children's children. Yeah, I really appreciate that question. Oh, yes, so much. Um, first of all, I'm just so scared for the world that my kid is going to grow up in. Um, mm. A world where I can't imagine. I just can't imagine what his life will be like 20 years from now, 50 years from now. I can't imagine what kinds of calamity will have become normative where climate is going to push refugees within our own um, within our own place. And it it really brings me back to this um, this teaching in in Kohelet Rabbah, this this midrash, when when the Holy One created the first human, the first human being, God took Adam and led Adam around all the trees of the garden of Eden and said, pay attention that you do not corrupt and destroy my world. And because if you do corrupt it, there's no one to repair it after you. And I think about this teaching a lot as a parent because it feels like to me, if I don't take care of this place, then there is no life for my children. And if I don't teach my children to take care of this place, then there will be no capacity for them to have children or life to continue. Wow. So I think about it a lot and I think about it a lot also as a resident in a city that has lead poisoning as a rampant health issue. You know, we in Philadelphia, you're, I think like all kids get tested, their lead, their blood levels get tested for lead in their blood. And my kid, and at least two other friends who live in the neighborhood in West Philadelphia, our kids all have elevated lead levels in their blood. It's not super dangerous levels, but it's there. And, um, you know, as we wrote to our landlords and, you know, had them come and scrape and repaint, I just, I couldn't help but to think about, you know, the fact that I could ask for that. And the fact that ultimately, if it were bad enough, I could move. I have the resources and the mobility and the, and, and the access to be able to get up and go if I need. And that's just not something that all of my neighbors have and that I know that all of my neighbors with kids with lead in their blood have. Yeah. Um, well, I did move out of the city. So that's, that's something I, I, I think about a lot uh, for, for all the folks who, who um, didn't, didn't have that opportunity, didn't have those resources. Yeah. So just another couple seconds of your time. If you'd like to make a statement and support these groundbreaking conversations with Evolve, the podcast, the website, our web conversations, or the curricula that Evolve is producing, you can engage in citizen philanthropy and support us with a financial gift. Every single gift matters both in the bottom line and in terms of the statement it makes. There's a donation link in our show notes and you can check it out. Thank you so much for listening and, and thank you for your support. All right, now back to our regularly scheduled programming. What would you like um, or what would you hope that Jewish organizations, federations, synagogues, um, 
do they have a do they have a role to play on in environmental justice? Would you like more to be done? You know, what what do you think um, the organized Jewish community should or could be doing? Yeah, it's a great question, and I think that this is something that um, a lot of Jews and progressive communities contend with. Right, this question of um, what do we do and the tension between study and action. And of course, our ancestors have uh, thought about this question for as long as, um, as, long as we've been thinking. Um, so in the Talmud, in Masechet Kedushin, there's a, a discussion recorded and a story told. So uh, the story goes that there is an incident in which Rabbi Tarfon and the elders were uh, sitting in this house and they, they get asked this question, is study greater or is action greater? And Rabbi Tarfon answers and says, action, action's better. And then Rabbi Akiva answers and said, no, study is greater. And then everyone uh, jumps in and uh, presumably unanimously uh, then agree, study is greater, but not on its own. We don't study just, um, we can't just study. Study is greater because study leads to action. So I think that I share that piece of Torah just to, um, yeah, to say that there's so much learning for us to do as a Jewish community. There's so much, first of all, there's so much wisdom that our, that Torah has to offer us for this moment and for many moments that will come our way. And I think we need to keep learning Torah and we need to keep learning Torah in partnership with the social and environmental and political histories of the places that we're living in. And as, uh, as the masses say in this house, in the story, in the Talmud, um, we can't stop there, right? Our, we need to learn and build up and have that at our core. And then we need to be out in the streets. Then we need to be acting. And so our learning needs to lead to explicit and named and powerful anti-racism work, economic justice uh, reform, we need to be voting. We need to be um, we need to be involved politically, um, and I think specific to the environmental justice movement and to fighting environmental racism. I think it's important for each of us to know the history of the place that we're living in. And finally, I just want to acknowledge and name that I think we have to be really careful as a Jewish community to not make it seem like this issue exists entirely outside of the Jewish community, right? There are many, many Jews who in, in this country who are white and who haven't experienced environmental justice issues at their doorsteps. And there are also many Jews in this country who are not white, who are black and brown and who have um, themselves and have had their families experienced these issues firsthand. So I think we just, we're, this work goes hand in hand with the anti-racism work that I hope our communities are involved in. And just to say specifically that there are, you know, really exciting things happening on a national level. Um, this relatively new organization, Dayinu, is working to really uh, bring together um, Jewish communities across North America to contend with and advocate for climate justice and righting the wrongs that have happened in this country. and. You can go to their website and sign on and advocate for Congress to support a just and green recovery and get involved with them. So I think that there's um, there's much that we can do. And yeah, of course, as a rabbi, I want us to be doing that from a place of of deep, deep Torah in our bones and our kishkis. I think I want to close with a big question that I hope I can articulate um, sufficiently. Um, when we're talking about 
environmental racism and justice. We're talking about all these things. We're talking about history. We're talking about government and housing policy, urban planning, where where we might even be getting into like how capitalism works. I mean, it almost seems like for things to be different or better, we'd we'd need just a totally different world than the one we have, which which we're not going to get tomorrow or maybe in maybe in 20 or 50 years. So what what's a what's a productive way to think or talk about this that doesn't just feel overwhelming or just, you know, makes you want to throw up your hands and say, we need, you know, we need the Messiah to, to fix this, you know, essentially. Well, I don't think we have a choice. This is the world that we're living on. There's nowhere else for us to go. Um, and in the way that I like to think about, you know, Mashiach, the Messiah, it's like, yeah, I want to live in a world, I want to live in that alternative world where these issues are no more and where everybody has clean air to breathe and clean water to drink and shade in the summer and happy lungs and clean blood. But we have to build our way up to getting there. And I think about the learning and advocacy around this as um, as building that possibility, um, as building a pathway to redemption. And I don't think that Mashiach is going to come until we get our, until we get ourselves together. So um, it actually, I, yeah, it's exhausting. And I think that we're going to, we need to draw strength from each other, allow each other to take turns and step back when we're exhausted. But there's also something beautifully energizing about being in this work and knowing that this, that if we get it right, then we're making, we're, we're that much closer to, redemption well i guess it's hard to say this is an enjoyable topic but this was a really deep profound thoughtful conversation and i I really appreciate everything everything you've brought to it and and everything you're 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 teaching and, and 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 thinking about thank you so much for the opportunity so grateful to get to be here with you thank you so much for listening to my conversation with rabbi rebecca richman about her evolve essay, Environmental Racism, A New Year, An Ancient Call for Breath. Disturbing, but also really thought-provoking and, and, and hopefully beginning to point the way to a way forward. Well, that's my point of view. What did you think of today's episode? I'd really like to hear from you. This is, this is groundbreaking Jewish conversations is right in the title. Conversations means two ways, so at least send me your questions, comments, feedback. Hopefully you're not throwing any internet tomatoes, but whatever you got, you can reach me at bschwartzman at reconstructingjudaism.org. That is actually my real email. So I'd be thrilled if you went ahead and flooded it. Maybe not thrilled, but I'd I'd be happy. Um, We'll be back next month with a brand new episode. Evolve, Groundbreaking Jewish Conversations is executive produced by Rabbi Jacob Staub, and edited by Sam Walks. Our theme song, Ilufinu, is by Rabbi Miriam Margols. This show is a production of Reconstructing Judaism. I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman, and we will all see you next time.